Welcome back to A People's Guide to Publishing. I'm Joe Beal, the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing and Distribution. I'm also the author of A People's Guide to Publishing, which distills what I've learned from selling millions of books over the past 25 years. I'm Ellie Blue. I'm the Editorial and Marketing Director here at Microcosm. We are an independent midlist publisher based in Portland, Oregon and Cleveland, Ohio. We have over 700 books, over 25 employees, and we make about 40 new books every year. And we distribute thousands of titles from other publishers. We started this podcast so that we can share what we've learned with newer publishers so that you can learn from our mistakes. Or maybe you just want to understand the publishing industry. We are clear about who we are. We're just so clear about that we exist in these intersections. And the first two are... Uh, design and social cultural justice and so they intersect and then as design kind of goes off this way we find ourselves in the printing arts and as social cultural justice goes off this way we find ourselves in activism and then it comes back again for the intersection of uh, letterpress printing and the printing of banners posters flyers and, and uh, you know, pieces of cardboard on sticks so that people can hit the streets and, and do their best work in the way that makes the most sense to them. So, you know, from the, from the single word, which uh, at this point in time might be stop or cease fire, two words, all the way to the sentence and the page and the book and you know we kind of try and own everything in that space so that people can participate um, in a way that feels really healing to them. And so that's our biggest offer: is that we have all these tight spaces that we that we occupy and that we participate in with our customers and with our friends and with our community. So it seems like the shop at Matter is more than just a bookstore. Yeah, it was it was born as a design project from a design studio, and uh, and and that with with total respect to other bookstores, we never intended to be a bookstore. We just found ourselves at the place where a bookstore made the very most sense for the problem that we saw, for the challenges that we were trying to meet in our community. So it, it, we ended up being a bookstore, but we, we weren't born a bookstore. In 1999, we were born a design studio. And then it was uh, 2007 when we moved into a space that had a storefront that we were like, hey, you know, because because storefronts are such commodities in themselves. You know what I mean? Like a, a certain kind of action is expected. If you have a storefront, you either put curtains on it and live there. Or am I just talking about the 1980s and 90s? I'm not sure. But 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 <laughs> you either do that or you swing the doors open and say, let's see who our community is. Let's see if people want to get together. Um, and so when that happened, we did the latter. And it sounds like people really do. That's awesome. And you all are in Denver, right? Yeah, we're downtown Denver. We're now 
I think we're now the only, well, not only, only's are big terms, but, but we're one of the few bookstores in the downtown pocket. So a lot of, a lot of people from out of town will come and find us because they're, you know, they're that kind of person. I don't know if you're that kind of person. I'm that kind of person. I'm pretty sure lots of people are that person. That goes, that kind of person. I've got two hours to kill. Where's a bookstore, right? Or where's a record store? Or where is there a store with stamps or buttons or, you know, but, but, but that's what we are. We're that store that people tend to find when they're on the road. We were just in Berlin and well, that's what we did the entire time. Yeah. We were like, where's that store? <laughs> you know, and that store is everywhere in Berlin. There are some incredible <laughs> oh. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The the shopping we did in Berlin was so incredible. In fact, we didn't even know the first time Deborah and I went to Berlin together, the I think it was for my birthday, but but the first time we went together, we didn't even know we were there for Miss Red, the the Berlin art book fair. And one of the people that we visited named Anya Lutz. She has a typographic gallery there um, in Mitte and uh, called A to Z. And she said, oh, it's misread this weekend. So, you know, I won't be around. Bye. And I was like, what's that? And then <laughs> we showed up and we did so much buying. It was a ridiculous amount of buying. <laughs> Great relationships. Some of those relationships are, are still like thriving today. We and we've decided that like we're putting we're putting two art book fairs on our calendar every year, just to make sure that we we get to hang out with some of those amazing publishers around the world. Mm -hmm. Love that. Yeah, that's great, and that, that's um yeah. I mean, I felt like the and it's interesting. I love that way you you threw back to the eighties and nineties, like how people would be forced to live in a studio or a bookstore or, get or an office space or, you know, and that was sort of like an economic necessity of the time or like maybe just something that you could get away with, like in the lifestyle of like being an activist publisher or print shop. And it's interesting too, because that, that, you know, like the part of Berlin that I saw was like the 90s us where like you can still have a storefront that you rent that is like a very esoteric sort of um community gathering place and you know definitely has been priced out of so much of the united states that you just couldn't afford to have a downtown rent for something like that and so yeah. Yeah, You know, and that's why, like, I think your store is really unique and interesting is because you're, like, making that model work. And, you know, we've watched as, like, a lot of the contemporary stores that did that just can't function in the way that they used to anymore. So can you talk a little bit about, like, why you went into book selling personally and, like, you know, what were your sort of uh, influences and motivations? Um, so in the world of design and, and particularly graphic design, I ended up moving to New York from Washington, DC to, 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 yeah, I don't know if you have this visual, but it's a, it's a literary visual. It's a, it's a Dickensian tale with a young man with a stick and an, and a, 
hit a, a napkin tied to a stick with his oh there's my coffee oh nice there it is yay um <laughs> you've moved on from your bindle stiff era to your coffee delivery era right bindle stick thank you so so there is a story of that right there's a story of this young man going to make his fortune in the big city and that was kind of me when i moved to the united states i had a, a spell in washington dc in the 80s and then by the time 1989 came around i moved to new york city to to attempt to learn how to be a graphic designer and what i really found was that um because i didn't get into the cooper union for advancement in science and the arts which was the school i was targeting the, for the sons of immigrants you know i i realized that the city itself could teach me design if i paid a lot of attention so there were there were bookstores all throughout the flatiron district um academy bookstore mercer street bookstore downtown on broadway by nyu the strand bookstore in the basement there that had a lot of great books i mean I basically booked myself around New York City. Oh, and my favorite bookstore of all was called See Here. See yes. Here. Mm -hmm. it, was, Classic. it was a music <laughs> bookstore. Like, oh. So, so, so that's where I got my first copies of Howl. It's where I got my first copies of the Nova Convention from William Burroughs um, and... Uh, and uh, John Giorno. Um, it's where I got my first copy of the complete works of Marcel Duchamp. It's where I bought my first copies of uh, several Impulse jazz record um, records, where I, I started collecting jazz albums then. And, and I also collected all these books on graphic design, one of them being The Non-Objective World by Kazimir Malevich, or Mayevich, however you would say that. Um, and and as I grew up, you know, I have these super fond memories of these places that helped me learn my way into the profession that would be the thing I love the most. And, and, and I wanted to recreate that for people so that they felt encouraged to be in design in a really deep way that wasn't necessarily this kind of surfaced history that they were getting from their education, uh, but it was actually a chance to go really deep on any number of subjects that showed up in their lives as they were students of design. Now, that changed because it started being about big influences it started being about books that changed lives. My life again, my partner's life, our children's lives, and so on and so forth. So it started to grow when we realized that it wasn't just about design, it was about life-changing documents that we wanted people to get in touch with and feel like they were not alone. Even if they were self-teaching themselves something, they weren't alone. Even if they were having their children and they wanted some folk tales from another country, they, they weren't alone. Um, 
you know, it really, it really ended up being that kind of vibe. And we had, we had a stationary line that we had designed and printed here that we were using to talk about the creation of tools, a very human activity, but um, it was being, it was taken for granted that stationary came from somebody else who decided what a, what a notepad looked like or what a, um, a notebook looked like or what index cards looked like. And we were like, mm, that's, that's a choice, you know? So we decided to make our own and that was one of the staples of the store early on. And then it just grew up around this idea of self-reliance and this idea of um, independence and all of these immigrant qualities that I had picked up from my parents and from other immigrants and from people who were self-reliant and who had a sense that, you know, it was because they were individuals and that they were non-compliant individuals that they became valuable to their community because they did not comply. And, and that's my, that's my very punk roots speaking up. That's, that's really like what I care about. Um, Non-compliance through all forms of deep learning, non-compliance by all forms of kind of community building of your own best self to participate with other best selves. Talk about esoteric storefront. <laughs> I love that. I was pausing without responding because I was writing that down. <laughs> um, yeah. That's so beautifully put. And I would totally buy the notebook with that phrase on it, non-compliance through all forms of deep learning. Yeah, um, that's, that's who we became, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, we, and we still are that now. I don't, uh, I don't know if you, since the last time we saw each other, um, I don't know. I mean, it's we we are now opening a venue. Oh, wow! Yeah. Nice. yeah, I you know in my in my twenties I was like I want to own a bar, you know, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because you know every twenty year old wants to own, wants to be the center of the party, so wants to own a bar, and then I'm like oh, I want to own a, a falafel stand, you know, like because I want to <laughs> like provide like good food for people and falafel is like one of the great ways to get like a cheap meal um again back to new york city in the 90s mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and all these things started emerging for me about what i wanted but i didn't suspect i never suspected that we would land on a book bookstore and uh early 20th century printing presses right <laughs> <laughs> That's just weird. So, so. Um, so let's zoom in from the esoteric philosophy and into the day to day, which I feel like will be just as esoterically fruitful. But what is your day to day life like in the shop? Like, what are and what are the funnest days? I mean, I guess I'll preface it with the thought that comes to me from time to time and I'm not sure whether other people have this too but you know when you're when you're with somebody who loves you so deeply um, and you sense yourself not only non-compliant but also perhaps um, you know perhaps neurodiverse or 
or you sense yourself not fitting in, you kind of ask yourself, should you actually you ask your partner, you know, like, am I am I so much trouble that I should be medicated or or what 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 should I do about that? You know, and and they say to you, no, you're you're lovely quite the way you are. Um, and it gives you permission to um, to just think about your brain as a very specific kind of tool or instrument in this life. And because I move from thing to thing, like I, I will move my energy f around the space. We have a space downstairs that's, that's the bookstore. We have a space downstairs that's the print shop. We have a space upstairs for designing. I have a space behind me for collecting and writing. I have a space that's across the way for collaging. And we have multiple other spaces for reading and for thinking and for doing. And I break my time up based on how my brain feels. I feed my brain various types of you know, sort of encouragement and nutrition to continue to work for me. And I try and figure out how the day works with short lists of things to do and long lists of things that always need to be done. So it's a short list world, it's a long list world. If the short list is knocked off, the long list engages. Um, and, and it depends. Sometimes it's doing the marketing for the store, sometimes it's doing a graphic design project, sometimes it's making a poster for a particular kind of protest that's coming up. Um, sometimes, and this is every Saturday when I'm in town, I work the store. I work the register, I work the room, I meet people, I chat with people, um, and, and I, I do a little bit, well, I do a lot of a, of a number of different things, and it seems to keep me energized and excited and Sometimes I'm overwhelmed, but honestly, I have I have choices. And and uh, when I work, I always work with another team member, so um, we support each other in a similar way. You know, Sounds it just like depends. A jazz improvisation. It's a little yeah. jazzy. It really is. But I think that's my that's my privilege for understanding jazz well. It's also my privilege for being so well-loved the way that my brain is. And and uh, and, and that's kind of how it works out for me. I, I don't, hi, <laughs> that's my better half. Um, and, and I'm not trying to take a diagnosis and and own it. I'm just trying to say that, like, if if for some reason, you know, people feel like they lack a focus, you know, it's it's possible that you're just, you know, you you're just excited about lots of things, and you should em embrace that to the best of your ability, you know, and see where that takes you. I'm also at that age where I feel like, you know, every time I get excited. 
uh, I got to I got to pee a little bit too. So you know, there's no there's no telling what our bodies are going to do for us or to us every every day. You know? Right. That's great. And yeah, and I think that's part of it too. It's like, you know, it's like any, a diagnosis is a tool, just like understanding your role in the community and like seeing where you're useful and like seeing what people want from you and like understanding sort of like how you fit into a greater whole. And I mean, I feel like that's the thing that matter has done in a very you know like i guess yeah it's your very 80s new york which i had never thought of it that way before so like understanding that part of your story makes a ton of sense because most bookstores don't and even like most print shops most design shops do not engage in such a pragmatic way where you're really looking at it where you're like what do people need what are people you know what's going on in the world like what what is our role within that you know and so and you know which is like very much how like microcosm engages with the world you know for and this has kind of always been our strength is that you know when you look at it that way you're never like oh what are my tastes you're looking at it more like what is needed of me at this time exactly you know? exactly it's like I, we tell people, like, if you're not gap filling over here by your third week, if you work here, then you don't get it. Yeah. Like, it's about it's about a, a, an ad hoc gap analysis to the world you live in so that you can hear the cries for help in a world gone mad. And and that that's just like that's just Wednesday. That's just, you know, that's just a regular day when you are engaging with um, community members who have needs. And that's basically how we run the shop. We, we don't train people to sell books. We train people to, to acknowledge other human beings because so many of the people that walk in our front door know that they're coming into a place like this. And it's our job to help them tell their story and help them tell us where um, where we might start to find the resource that they need to be connected to. And, and, and to the credit of Microcosm and some of our other publishers, like this is a very easy task for us because there are small format documents. There are inexpensive documents that we can give people so that they feel connected to the problem and connected to the solution. And it doesn't have to exist that big publishing and it doesn't have to come from the big three. It can come from a zine. And we have, we have so many zines in our, in our, um, in our, collection of, of documents in our resources that when someone says, you know, I just want to get into a little bit of history. I'm like, oh, oh, we have a small set of zines over here that cover the Spanish-American War or that cover, you know, the, I mean, are you aware of the um, Iranian um, revolution? Are you aware of the history of that moment? You know, do you need to get more access to the history of Palestine or Israel or any of the phenomena that people are engaged in now. Because because TV will tell you how to feel in the moment. They'll, there, there's no 
shortage of TV stations telling you how to feel outraged, enraged, or just rageful, and and a book or a zine can teach you the history of the moment that we're in. And that to me is real change because, because yes, there are atrocities. There are absolutely human rights violations going on all over the planet all the time. Okay. However, however, to learn the history of those moments, to learn about those places, that's real knowledge. It's because nobody on television cares about adult, like, um, you know, sort of social emotional learning. No one on television cares about adult learning like that. But but there are many books and many small format books and that care about you learning the history of that moment. And that's that's really to us. It's the better approach to. Um, educating yourself to a circumstance that you may or may not have a full understanding of is to go backwards in time and try and find stories not told by the victors but stories that are told by people who are experienced who have experienced it you know yeah yeah and that's you know this is kind of was big in our fundamental thinking too is you're like you don't need 300 pages to explain something or teach something or even walk someone through a very complicated concept like you can do that in 20 or 30 pages that you use expeditiously you know and so what do you wish that publishers understood better or like how would you like to see publishers think differently um for me it's yeah. There's two parts to this. The first part is I wish publishers were more climate aware. I, I honestly don't think that they give a thought to the amount of trash that we end up inheriting when we get boxes of books. And, um, and that like, you know, being climate aware also means that the person that touches the box last is the one responsible for its disposal or its recycling or its reuse. And this is difficult. This is an expensive and difficult part of the business. Um, I, I believe that Publishers can do better and stores can do better, but it's it shouldn't be that the publishers and the stores aren't working together. I feel that like there could be a really interesting um, future pact that everyone in the chain of um, from from thought to book or from thought to document everyone in that chain could be thinking about it from a climate aware perspective and could be making movements towards a more sustainable future and particularly um the reuse of various uh various uh packaging and packaging supplies and so on and so forth so so that's one thing that i feel is unattended 
and perhaps brings it brings our responsibility into focus not just the publisher's responsibility but ours too and i and i'm okay with that since since i believe we are already doing quite a bit but i'm but i'm okay with a more creative sort of think tank or a more creative um addressing of that issue so i can learn how to do more and better and that publishers could do more and better as well um have you found any creative solutions to the packaging how to handle the packaging you get from publishers yeah back in the day um we were sending out our our stationary products, which were also made from rescued paper from print shops that were out of business. Um, I would go into an auction of a print shop and buy the room full of paper for like $100. And then I would make the products out of that paper. And then we would break down the boxes that we received and ship out the stationery in the same boxes that we received and screen print on the front of it, re reclaimed um, packaging. And nice. so, so that was something that we did for a long time. And, um, and I still think that if we can do it, that's a great way of, of reusing resources. It's just really costly and, and time costly to be constantly Re reshaping or reconforming a box into the right size. You just have to have like a lot of deft maneuvers with that because you know, like, yeah. mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to say it except for there's a way yeah. of making a 12 inch high box down into a three inch high box and then folding mm -hmm. it and you know, but, but my point is, is that reuse is our winner. Um, and we, and we, we sometimes can afford to do that. And and it's not me being sympath unsympathetic mm -hmm. to people who have whole rooms full of boxes that need to be broken down and built back up again. Like, I know that's a reality. Um, the, the other thing which I think is a bit more serious is um, I believe and I'm aware that um, massive corporations get tax breaks in the municipalities that they exist in because someone believes in trickle-down economics and someone believes that uh, by being an employer of a couple of thousand poorly paid ununionized workers that they're somehow doing the world a favor and I really think that the amount of benefits that are given to massive corporations that are not human first that they're profits first oriented um, the amount of benefits that are given to them the amount of consideration that's been given to them by publishers um, is is dis disruptive and destructive to small business and to um, to our sense of of liberation, and it forces us to comply by means of capitalism, and it forces us to comply with single bottom line strategies that are not um, 
that are not equitable and we resist that at all times so so the thing that publishers can do is um, I believe they can do a couple of things number one um, they can participate in the authors intersectional communities so that the bookstores that represent those intersectional communities can have advance um, advanced copies and advance access to the documents so that we get um, pre-release dates for these tools. It's just a it's one of the favorable sort of conditions that we can create in the marketplace, which is we have the product before the gigantic corporation has the product, which means that we can fulfill the needs of the community that's closest to this product and closest to this author. Um, and I really feel that coordinating that with the ever dwindling quantity of bookstores in the United States is actually something that publishers can do. It's a finite number and it's not impossible to get done. Um, the other thing is that authors um, could demand uh, more control over their product so that they can um, figure out how to create advantages to their local bookstores or to their community-run bookstores. Um, and they can be part of the, the release strategy for these documents so that they can um, be much more connected to the communities that, they, that their documents serve. And, and we can reduce the amount of benefits that the gigantic corporations that are trying to sell books have and re return some of those benefits to smaller bookstores that are more concerned with communities. And I say this because um, many black intellectuals um, don't have control of their product. And before you know it, gigantic corporations are selling the work of black intellectuals for less than what it costs for the, book, the, the community bookstore run by black people more than like they're selling it for less than what the bookstore can get for for cost and this is the phenomena that we experience on a big release like um uh, former president barack obama's book or michelle obama's book you know this is the phenomena that we experience it's impossible for us to participate in those circumstances with that book because no person, you know, in their right mind would spend, you know, 30% or 40% more on the book just to buy it from us. In fact, we wouldn't want them to have to do that, but we should be wise enough to create a circumstance where that's not the case because people do have budgets and we respect their budgets and we respect that, you know, they may not, they may not, have the opportunity to buy it from us for the, exactly the same reason compliance through capitalism you know and so just disrupting that would be an amazing gift to small bookstores and having authors and publishers care about the brick and mortar stores um and and care about the release dates and care about how favor is shone on us because 
the gigantic corporations that have so many favorable conditions created for them in the various municipalities that they exist in, um, those those guys don't need any help undermining our presence. And they do it so seamlessly and easily. Um, so, so that to me is a very serious kind of pipeline-based issue for intellectual property um, and for the products of queer and black and female intellectuals that if if we really think about it, it's precisely um, people who have um, marginalized identities or um, who should have the power to give a favor to the stores that represent those identities and that serve those communities. I feel like you just described a zine that I would love to read and sell. <laughs> We'll talk after the recording. For sure, um, for sure. <laughs> um, what is the, if you could choose, if you have to choose one thing and you don't, uh, what is the most important thing about bookselling for you? Acknowledging human beings. It's not, it's not selling. There is no selling. It's kind of like, you know, when you cook a meal for a dozen people, there is no labor. It's just love. Um, it it's it's it just isn't about bookselling. And I and again, I, I always have to be sensitive to the idea that for someone it is. For someone it has become that. I respect that. And for that person or for those organizations, the bookselling part of it may have another completely different um, le level of access and you know, a set of levers and pulleys that they are that they are manipulating in order to be a participant in that. But for us, um, it's the acknowledgement that we uh, thrive on with other people. It's the chance for someone to walk in the front door and tell their story and then be seen. And then in that, there's likely to be a resource that we carry that will connect them to an idea that they've been wrestling with and that they've been thinking about and that they've been hoping to find some clarity on. And that's where we come in. That's once someone shares their story, boy, it's game on. It's all love all the time. I love that. That's great. And, it, and you know, and this has been like, it's interesting too, because yeah, we, you know, you forever are stuck in the position between balancing your time versus, like, you know, servicing the reason you exist in the first place. And, um, you know, so, but part of that too, is that, you know, we've had a bookstore for many years as well. And, you know, I know that many days, the reality of that is you have like funny chance encounter when somebody comes in and they, they're just looking for a murder mystery and then like stumble upon this like ideological sledgehammer of a bookstore, <laughs> you know, or they're, you know, so, and they're just like, Oh, I just wanted the new Tom Clancy or they come in and they're like, where's your um, religion section? And then you show it to them. They're a little bit horrified because it's not exactly what they were picturing. So do you have a funny um, bookstore story to share with our audience? 
Well, I suppose. I mean, there are there are funny, like hmm, and then there's funny ha ha's. Um, you know, like some things just make us have a giggle, and I think it's all it's circumstantial. We had one customer come in, and and I'll go ahead and just kind of call it the way I see it. it there was controversy all over this but I'll just call it the way I see it. You know, like there's a community member that um, appears to be indigent, that appears to not have a lot of resources, and they also appear to have a mental health challenge. And when they come in the store, they're browsing, they're thinking about what kind of book they want, and, and they approach the register with torn shards of paper to pay for it. And it's been like a joyful, weird moment for me to say, yeah, what are we looking for today? And they're like, I don't know, something exciting, something interesting, you know? And I would say, oh, okay, well, why don't we try this? And I'll hand them something and they'll say, oh yeah, that's great, okay. And then they'll pay with scraps of newspaper and they'll go away and they'll, and they'll leave. And these scraps of newspaper are the way that they kind of transact. Now, I can't, I can't do anything for their mental health and it's not a crisis for me to interact with them. But there's something so available in that moment when we identify who that person is and what they're going through. And just to say, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's do this the way that you want to do this. And let's not create any stress about it. Because we don't have a policy about loss management. We don't have a policy about, you know, one of our employees putting their body between, like, someone who wants to steal a book and the door, you know. Like, we don't have policies like that. And so at the same time, we could extend that policy to a person who is going through something and having an experience and simply meet them where they are and move through. Like, just don't create friction in that moment. And I come back to those moments and I'm just like, man, that is so interesting that we just do that. And <laughs> that we don't create friction. And it's it's sort of feels like an act of love. It, Even though I... I I can I cannot even pretend to understand what this person really needs. I know that they don't want friction in this moment. I know that that would just agitate them. And I don't want them to feel like that they can't get a book. Yeah. It's it's just not it's not something we're trying to protect. Right? So so we have these moments that are kind of funny, like contemplative. They're strange. They're, they're examples of how we could be in the world, you know? 
And then we have these really sort of interesting moments like, um, you know, a, a couple come in and they're like looking for the black version of rich dad, poor dad. And, and I'm like, uh, let me look that up and see if we have that. And I'm realizing what it is. It's this like, sort of hyper capitalistic um, self-help book. And, <laughs> and, and I don't have it. And I try and offer like something else to them. Like, have you heard of Franz Fanon? You know, <laughs> okay. would you like to go anti-capitalist today? <laughs> you know, like he's concerned with the black psyche. Um, right. And 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 uh, and I say things like oh, he has a couple of blind spots, particularly that of feminists or intersectional feminism. But it's the 1950s, and so it's kind of an expected. Um, expression from uh, most male intellectuals that they're not thinking about the role of women, and and the the couple kind of like pause, listen, and then they just kind of walk out. And as the door closes, as the door closes, I can hear him say, "I told you that this isn't a black bookstore." Oh <laughs> wow! And I'm like I'm like. Uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> like, like that's wild to me. And, and I'm like, so, so it's, there, there are moments where I'm just like astonished. And there are moments that I'm like in complete reverence. Um, but, there, but, but when we engage people, there is almost always a chance for joy and exchange of joy and from time to time, there's also an expression of grief. And from time to time, there's uh, often an expression of belonging. And so we're kind of here for all of it. And we know that um, e emotional expenditures like don't come to everybody naturally. But again, just back to this idea of like acknowledgement, um, it, it goes a long way to helping people feel safe and helping people feel like they have um in some places comrades in some places emotional siblings in some places just people who know how to hear and feel with them and that that to me has always been like the the principle like gift that our customers um give to us is that they they are they are taught by our action and they bring their own benevolent action into the frame and that we have this exchange and it's so it's so delightful you know with the venue and the other things that we're working on right now we're hoping that that amplifies with some evening activities of readings and um, and performance, and that we'll continue to offer new things to people, so that until the publishers of the world um, kind of align with our values, um, you know, we'll figure it out. And and by the way, one of the things that we're inspired to do, and I know that. Um, Microcosm is, has agreed to help us out a little bit here, but one of the things we we're inspired to do 
is to um, build build a library so that people can, when they're given these kinds of difficult choices about what to buy and if to buy, um, that we have loaning options for them for some books that are um, we've got we've got two publishers on board for that, and it's incredibly generous, and it's also our value alignment that kind of meets that. So so how do we become a bookstore library? Um, that's just an absurd notion, but yet it is something that we are like deeply committed to because we think that this is from time to time, not all the time, but from time to time, this is what the community might need is a book to borrow until payday. Um, you know, a book to borrow so that they can quickly absorb something and bring it back or, you know, participate in something that they are, um, are wanting to participate in. So, so we're excited about that. That's great. Yeah, there was, I mean, I, and your story reminded me, you know, years ago, there was a guy who came in our store drunk and, you know, and he was kind of bumbling around and the other customers were irritated and we were like, hey, what are you after? And he was like, do you have bury my heart at wounded knee? And he's like, you know, I'm indigenous. And that's like the book that always like brings me back. And I was like, oh, yeah, we got that. It's right here. And, and then he bought the book. And then as he left, all the other customers were like, oh, I didn't think that guy was a customer. And you're like, well, I mean, you, you kind of can't know that until you talk to him. And it was kind of, you know, and I feel like that was like a moment where like we were maybe unique in the way that you're talking about where you're like, you don't kind of meet somebody where they're at and you understand that they have maybe life circumstances that, you know, maybe didn't send them to the Ivy League or whatever. And, you know, and I think that's like a powerful role that a bookstore serves that, you know, maybe isn't why people get into it, but I feel like it's kind of what people get out of it, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. And anyone, I think there's like a value for kind of everybody in an exchange like that where you're like, oh, you have the thing the person was looking for and, you know, you can like kind of make their day a little better too. It's and surprising what customers do around that. They, In some cases, they're just like, whoa you handled that and i was like not even a little bit stressful you know right yeah not even a little bit stressful and it's all because of just how everyone gets the same welcome and everyone gets the same opportunity to tell their story right yeah well on that note i feel like we could talk all day long, like all day. lock out the rest of the day. Let's keep going. But for the sake of our podcast listeners, let's leave them wanting a little bit more. And um, end it here. Do you have any final words of um, exhortation or wisdom or joy that you want to share? Uh, it's a. It's in some way, it's a privilege to like have these documents that we use as ways of seeing each other and answering the call to participate in each other's lives. I think we live in a time and in, in crisis of acknowledgement and that 
in in a country where queer people are being de denied the right to exist and trans people are being denied the right to exist and black people are being denied the right to exist i really feel that this instrument called a book or a zine or an, you know these objects that we are peddling are just opportunities to bring uh, identities and acceptance into focus and uh, it's a privilege to be able to be part of that story in this time because like the 80s um, there is no punk revolution if women can't dance and like the 90s there is no real revolution if we're not fully queer and in our fully queer bodies and right now it's all about what we do with each other and how we see each other. And we're just so proud to be a part of something that's not in the mainstream and that does take acceptance and does take um, acknowledgement very seriously. And so, you know, wherever we go, it is, um, it's a part of our narrative and we hope that we are creating a liberatory framework and a liberatory experience for everyone involved. And it's, you know, it's all about love. Thank you so much. Uh, this episode has featured an interview with Rick Griffith of the Shop at Matter bookstore in Denver, Colorado, as part of our bookstore solidarity project. This is our December um, partnership. Thank you so much for being on with us, Rick. Thanks for joining us once again. Please send your questions to podcast at microcosmpublishing.com so we can answer them on future episodes. And please give us five stars on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are reviewed. You can find us on the internet at microcosm.pub. On Twitter at microcosm. On Facebook at microcosm publishing. On Instagram at microcosm underscore pub. And here in Portland, Oregon on North Williams Avenue. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week.